let's begin Bible class as everybody scurries around. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning, a uh, little under the weather with a little nice drizzle out there, Father, that's necessary to uh, sparse up our greenery, Father. And we, But this morning we have the a pleasure of coming together to hear from you, to study your will and man's will, how they clash oftentimes, but how they can um, best line up as we walk through the Christian life. Again, Father, we thank you for this time that we dedicate to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me kind of just for two-minute review tell you what section we're on in this study, and then we'll get to where I want to go this morning. Uh, first of all, we're talking about what implications come with the right to freely choose. In other words, God has given you the right to freely choose. What 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 does it carry with it? What weight? So the first one we dealt with last week was freedom to choose carries with it the responsibility for choice. You're responsible. That's as easy as that. You make a choice, take the responsibility. Sometimes a choice will be wonderful. Sometimes it'll be okay. Sometimes it may not work out, and you can move on. You know, uh, as uh, as we kind of looked at a little bit <clears throat> with Esau's choices, and we're going to get back to him in a moment this morning. Secondly, we also uh, talked about we are not mature in any way until we accept responsibility for the choosing. So what it shows is not necessarily physical respond, uh, maturity, but Spiritual maturity, as we grow, we know that the God has given us the ability to choose and the responsibility goes along with it. And uh, not to make excuses as Adam and Eve did when they passed the buck up the chain kind of thing, basically saying, God, it's your fault. Uh, so, and you made me this way, and that, therefore it's, you're responsible, not me. And many people have passed responsibilities on to other people. Uh, today we're going to talk about our choices, ref- begin with this morning. Uh, talk about our uh, choices reflect what and who we are. And I think that's important. Because sometimes we make choices and say, why did I choose that way? And basically got to go back to the paradigm of who are you? What is it, What is at your core? So let's go to Hebrews. Cha- <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll talk a little bit more about Esau. So we're in verse 16 of chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. So what it says in verse 16 is is that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. So the standard of godlessness and immorality is Esau. Esau became the standard in the book of Hebrews of what uh, that was. And the the interesting thing, the word for godless is babylos, B-B. B-E-B-E-L-O-S, if you're taking notes. B-E-B-E-L-O-S. It means accessible to all, common, mundane. He treats his birthright as just an ordinary thing. It's not. There's no importance behind his birthright. He, he sold it for a very uh, meager choice, I guess is the best way to put it. I mean, he sold it for some red stuff. I mean, what's the cost of something that... Uh, had not only significant value to the family, but also significant value in spiritual life. And Esau had no spiritual life, and he sold it for a cup of red stuff. And um, In other words, how much would you give up for tacos and chips? You know, kind of thing. Uh, he has no place, and, and, and which is interesting because it says in verse 17, for we know that even afterwards... And when he desired to inherit the blessing, so there's a time he said, you know, I really want to be blessed. I want to have that birthright that goes along with everything. Uh, he rejected it. He was, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance. Now, repentance is part, part of the idea is he had to change his mind about what he did and who he was and what God, uh, what, who God was. And he didn't change his mind about that, even though he what? He sought it with sorrow. So crying in tears doesn't mean anything unless you what? Your mind is engaged. And he, he did. He sought it with tears. He, oh, I'm so sorry. And sometimes people come to you with that kind of an attitude, but really deep inside, there, there's no change. They just, there's, there's remorse for what they did. They made a bad choice. Judas is another one. Judas uh, was so remorseful, he hung himself, but that didn't mean he had any true change of mind. Kind of get what I'm saying there? And I think it's important because we see what kind of person Esau was deep down at his core because his standard of values was horrible. 
look back a page to chapter 11 of Hebrews. And if you do this, if you're a good observer of people, you can watch people and the choices they make, and you pretty much can know who, what their core values are, whether they're 8, 18, or 80. It's, and, and I'll explain that in a minute. But at your core values, you make choices. And what's the choices based upon? In verse 23, it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was beautiful. Uh, and beautiful doesn't mean he was, what a great looking baby. Because most of us can say that statement. Uh, probably ad nauseum, I think every baby's good looking, right? Or you would say when they're first born, put them back in and they're probably not done yet. You know, kind of idea. But they're just babies. But they, but the mom understood the spiritual value of Moses, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, now Moses grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing, look at that word, choosing. You guys understand what the word choosing means by now. He made a choice rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. In other words, he made a choice. What was in Moses' core? Moses' core was godly values that helped his choices. He could have easily lined up with people that were uh, sinful, that disregarded God. Listen, verse 26 says, Considering the reproach of Christ, or the Messiah, great, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. So he not only had a spiritual value in life, as life went around, he looked forward to the afterlife and the reward that came with it. Um, so by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he, for he endured as, as seeing him who was unseen. So Moses, again, was very representative of someone with a higher set of values, or we could say he's the original Hebrew national, right? He answered to somebody with a higher calling instead of an earthly value kind of idea. And I think that's important. Because what set Moses different from Esau was their set of values that was incorporated within their very being of who they were. Uh, so we could we could put within this, this point we're de- dealing with this morning, our choices reflect who we are. And let's apply it for a minute. Let's talk about kids or, or little Johnny. There's no Johns here, so we're good. We can, we can pick on little Johnny. Who, is, who, who we could say was a great child until he got around his school friends, and now he's always in trouble. What's the problem with little Johnny? His school friends or his inner set of values? Why was he so easily influenced by what we'd call the troublemaking kids? Why wasn't he taught to make good, responsible choices, even in the midst of bad influences? And I think that's something we were all taught at some point, some core values that kind of lined us up with who we are, and, and we got to constantly, first of all, understand, A, we're responsible for our choices. Secondly, there have got to be godly choices, and sometimes they're going to oppose all of the majority. Uh, we've got a, we got a season of voting coming up soon. I don't, I don't know if you know that. November's going to be an interesting month. But we've got to choose by the... Uh, by what? What are we looking for as a president? Are we looking for you know somebody that's uh, pastoral and, and loves the Lord? Or are we looking for somebody that will hold our core values? And that's the thing. Because there's a lot of things most of these guys run in. I would say I wouldn't even be friends with these guys. I wouldn't want to be lining up with them because most of their value system is messed up because we live in a corrupt world. I don't know if you know that. So we've got to choose of... Not the lesser of two evils, because I really think one side's pretty evil um, because of their choices. Um, but the other side has people with issues. So we've got to be, we've got to make choices now based on the choices that are presented to us. But our core values shouldn't change because because the name changes on the docket kind of thing. So here's some godly, how to exercise some godly options. Ready for this? What do, you, what do you read? What do you choose to read? What is your reading material? Now, some of you don't read, so I guess that one's all out. You're good. You don't read. Uh, I think reading um, is fundamental. You should be reading stuff. You should be reading godly sources. I'm going to tell you this. Um, not everything sold at a Bible bookstore is good. Some of it could be pretty bad. 
I don't know if you know that. Uh, I was to say, buyer beware. Um, maybe you're better off go get a mystery or something. Because some of those books are horrible because they're not biblically based. But what do you choose to read? Okay? Uh, what do you find entertaining? What do you find entertaining? Now, um, obviously, we're all different. Everybody finds different things entertaining. But what, 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 who are, what do you find that takes up your time? Okay, that's what I would say. Well, who are your heroes? You know, uh, it's, that's a good question, you know. When, you were, when I was a kid, the, ba- the, the basic top things people wanted to be was astronauts. Remember that? A hero, firemen, policemen, um, you know. And then there were sports stars, you know. But most of those are corrupt anyway, so... No, I'm just kidding. Some of them are. Um, so we have, how do you, what do you choose to read? What do you find entertaining? Who your heroes are? How about this? Where do, you, where do you spend your time and your money? Where does most of your time and money go to? Now, I'm not getting into your pockets. But it's, but it's a really good determiner to see what you're doing is where you're spending your time and money at. So, so that's kind of what, what we have here is... As we look at what we choose, we can do uh, something very interesting for ourselves. We can determine what kind of person we are by, by our choices. By our choices. And, uh, and it's hard because we're confronted with choices every day about different things. Uh, my choice yesterday wasn't very good. I'm going to be honest with you. I wasted 30 minutes of my life. I didn't want to watch golf because I found it just like, but, well, I said I'll watch just for sake of some pastor on TV, um, just to see what he's like, because I've never really paid attention. 30 minutes gone, I'll never be able to get back. What a waste of time. But you see, you think it's, he's a pastor. He leads a huge church. He's got something, at least something, that would spark an interest to say, okay, I'll check that out biblically. There was nothing, 30 minutes of talking. And that was it. So I made a bad choice. Fourthly, what we, what's on, and it's under this caption we have before we go into the life of Joseph, and that's where I want to head this morning, is that Joseph was a great, had a great ability to choose from as a child. But fourthly, recognizing the full responsibility for our choices, can, can we find ourselves in situations that we did not choose or that are contrary to our will? In other words, can you be in a bad place in a bad way that's not of your making, and how do you respond to it? And I'm going to tell you, if you read anything that's in, in the news today, there's some horrific events that happen to people, and you say, how did that happen? And the last thing we want to do is say to that person, oh, it's your choice, it's your fault. You got yourself in that. And there's situations in life, because we live in a world full of sin, that are not of our choice, choice or making. Uh, as believers, as believers, we can be forced into circumstances that are contrary to our will or wish or even our beliefs. Uh, what happens if we come under extreme persecution? I know right now we're so comfortable. We're Americans. Nothing will ever happen like that here. Uh, it could. It could. Uh, how would we respond to that? Uh, you could be in a situation or a circumstance that's not of your choosing. How would you respond? So I want to give you a few, okay? Uh, pray none of these occur to any of us. So that's a good prayer list, okay? What about a horrible marriage? You made a choice. To marry, but things happen within that marriage. Um, I, I'm not sure who it is, so I'm not going to give you who it was, but one of the famous um, Bible teachers that were at Dallas, I'm pretty sure I know which one it was. His, he was married for, I think, over 25 years, and his wife went psycho. I mean, really, just crazy. And it, all of a sudden, he was in for a horrible time, ended up getting a divorce, and he was... Uh, Basically, Spurgeon's uh, 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 things were made, cast at him, and horrible things were made at him because that was, you know, because he married a monster that they turned out, and it was his fault. Like, what? Uh, sometimes stuff happens in life. Uh, there's child abuse. Uh, and I don't think that child chose who his mom and dad was, or her, who their mom and dad was. That's the situation they were placed in. Uh, but I'm going to say something. At some point, that child does become responsible for their reactions to the situation. And sometimes the best thing is get out. You know, a child gets a certain age, they can get out. But I, I got, I'm going to be honest. I have no answers because there's so much horrible things that happen in society 
and keep counselors busy forever because people don't know how to raise children and there's no license given out for it. I don't know if you know that. You know, you don't have one that says licensed to child, you know, to, to have a child. You don't get one of those. So anybody can have a child. You know, and it's, it's horrible what's going on in society. But along with that, we could be a prisoner for Christ. What would happen? That's not your choice. What would your reactions be? And some of the wonderful stories were told of people that were prisoners and, and the testimony they held up through their imprisonment. I think one of them was Paul, right? So we have a wonderful testimony. Uh, but I'm going to say this as nicely as I can. Okay, Even in all these situations, we're still responsible for our reactions to the situation. You understand what I'm saying? I think God holds us responsible. You say, well, how does a child be held responsible? Well, not a child, but at some point the child is accountable and and needs to react in a correct way. Uh, Children that turn around and kill their parents because of child abuse, I don't think think that's a proper reaction. You know, call an authority. Um, You know, there is a number for what is it now, DSHS or something, whatever the number is. All right, that's kind of bluesy, so I want to change the conversation a little bit. Let's talk about Joseph. Joseph, would, we would say, had at least, at least a 15-year period of bad happenings to a good guy. Okay, uh, And so we're going to look at Joseph. So if you want to, you could turn back to Genesis 37. Joseph takes up the predominant place in the book of Genesis. So if there's anything we could say about Joseph's character, it's pretty transparent in the book of Genesis. He's 37 through 50. He gets 14 chapters all to himself. Okay? All about Joseph. Um, So I'm going to give you two doctrinal truths about Joseph's life before we actually get into Joseph's life and uh, see how far we get into it this morning. And we're going to make direct application to things that happen to how to make life choices, okay? So here's the two basic things. First of all, the sovereignty of God does not diminish human responsibility to make choices. God is totally sovereign and knew what Joseph was going to go through. God even tells Joseph certain things uh, through visions of what will happen. For instance, he tells Joseph through a, uh, a, a dream that there'd be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine later in his life and he knows now what to do with that because God gave it, to, but he's still got to make a choice to do something with that. Uh, and Joseph's, and not only that, Joseph's got to make the plans that go along with the, uh, the, the incident that occurred. So first of all, the sovereignty of God does not diminish human responsibility to make choices. Secondly, personal involvement of God in the lives of those who are in incredible circumstances that are not of their choice. In other words, God is involved personally with people's lies, especially those. I know, well, I shouldn't say especially because I can't show the line of demarcation how much more. But he's still personally involved with people that are under childbirth, horrible marriages, prisoners, and so on and so forth. God's still involved in their lives. And oftentimes, we want answers to the wise, Not the W-I-S-E, the wise, W-H-Y-S. Think about this. We all want the answer. Would it change anything? And I think sometimes we're not given the answers because God wants us to handle it and grow from it. Now, first of all, let's go to 37, chapter 37, and we're going to read 1 through 4. Now, Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph went, and boom, we go right to Joseph which is interesting because in chapter 37 we're not getting the litany of other brothers. We're just dealing with Joseph. And in verse uh, 2 it says, Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring a flock with his brothers while he was still young, a uh, youth, along with sons of Bilhah and the sons of Z- uh, uh, Zilphah, uh, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a, a bad report about, uh, about them to their father. So it's not, he's just being what? A snitch, right? No, he's not. He's doing what his father told him to do. And sometimes the truth will find you out. Now Israel loved Joseph, or Jacob, you can, so you know God changed his name to Israel. Israel loved Jake, uh, Joseph more than his, all his sons. So he's a favorite son. That's not a good place to be. Uh, because he was the son of, of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic, or a tunic of many colors, whatever. Uh, basically, 
that set him aside as the leading son. He's number 11 in the chain of sons, but now he leads all the other ones. In verse 4, it says, And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Now, here's the first set of circumstances Joseph has. He has brothers that just hate him. How's, how's family life for Joseph? Daddy adores him. Brothers hate him. Not a good place to be. Uh, verse 5 says, Then Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So not only was he hated, but now it was elevated. It was escalated to even more hatred. Um, and we're not told about the way the hatred was carried out, but you could just let your mind wander. How how horrible that could have been to be in a family situation. And the family was very close-knit back there in the Middle East. So if you married off a son, he would bring in his wife and he'd make another part to your tent. Bring in a son and make another part to your tent. So it was basically one big, what do you call it, villa. A huge villa with all these people living together. And, and all of them combined to hate Joseph. Not a good situation. Verse 20 says, and now when they had come, and, uh, and uh, now then, come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. So the brothers got together. The hatred had so escalated, they wanted to kill him and throw him into a pit. In other words, uh, murder and hide the body. Okay? Uh, and while he's down in that wild pit, a wild beast will devour him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams, some dreamer. Because basically in his dream he had said that his brothers and his mother and father would serve him uh, at some capacity. Verse 28, instead, we see that, they, uh, that some Midianite traitor, traitors passed by and so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and they sold him to the Ishmaelites, which is interesting because if you remember correctly, he was sold to his cousins. Right? Because... It was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham had a son named Ishmael. And these were the, the tribe that came out of that, uh, Hagar's son. And basically, it's distant. What is it? Third cousins? Second cousins? Whatever. I don't know how you count these cousins. But it was relatives that bought him. So he was sold into slavery. So far, things look up for this young man. Joseph, well, let me kind of set this stage. Somewhere in this time period, he also loses his mother. His mother had died. So he just has father, brothers, no mother. Uh, and, that's, and his mother died after giving birth to Benjamin, right? The, the last kid. So we, it's, it's horrible. So now, and we don't know what, how old Benjamin was when this is going on. We probably can ascertain that, but I don't think Benjamin was really involved in this hatred, though. Um, but just think about it. Jo- Joseph then later goes to a psychiatric uh, counseling, and the psychiatrist says, lay down, tell me about your mother and father. How was your relationship then? How about your brothers? What was going on in your family life? Because you're going to be a messed up kid. You're going to have some really great excuses because your family life stunk. Now, I'm going to say something. I don't think many of you realize this because we've abused this terminology. We, uh, we say, oh, I grew up in a dysfunctional family. You ever heard, anybody ever heard that? There is not a functional family in the Bible that I know of. Think about it for a minute. When there's, well, we could say maybe Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus. That was pretty functional, right? You had a perfect kid. Things are going great. <laughs> uh, uh, but we don't even know what, what off Joseph, because Joseph just leaves the map. But when we talk about society, people always want... Um, excuses, but it's fascinating because not only was Joseph uh, talk, taken out by the Midianites, which was distant family too, another set of sons from Abraham, I forgot to mention that, sold to the Ishmaelites, but in verse um, 36, meanwhile the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, uh, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, so he sold again, basically. He sold. This exchange of him was going on constantly. He was sold into Egypt, which at that time was not super friendly with Israel uh, or any real time. Uh, but now, what choices did Joseph make to put himself in that predicament? And there was none. There wasn't a choice Joseph had made. Um, we can say the sovereign God allowed it to happen. 
And how would you line up if you were in a horrible situation and the only, th- the only theological thing you've got to hang on to is God is sovereign, he allowed this to happen, okay. It almost sounds like, like oh, i just got to lay down and deal with it. But Joseph never laid down and deal with it. He moved through the whole thing. He kept the move on. Uh, tough, ex- But I'm going to say this, tough experiences in life are never excuses for the behaviors we see today. So when somebody, and if you see it, almost every time somebody does something crazy in society, the papers will come out, oh, this is the reason why, what led up to these events. No! He still had a, a responsibility not to make that, or she, not to make those decisions. So somebody's trigger happy because, oh, I was, well, you know, bullied in school. Not a good reaction. Okay, not, not, not even an acceptable reaction. The reaction is what? Be above that. Know that God's in control, and that's, and that's often hard. By, by the time we get to chapter 40, verse 23, listen to this. The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So Joseph was left in prison. We're skipping a whole lot of stuff, but he was left in prison and forgotten. When, the, when he told this cupbearer this is what would happen, he'd be released, he'd go back in, and the cupbearer said, please remember me. Remember me. And the cupbearer went about his duties and absolutely forgot Joseph. So Joseph has left. So we'll add these things um, to that, um, and it's it's horrible. Now, so let's talk about some of Joseph's reactions. Well, mostly at the onset, what we need to deal with. First of all, Joseph recognized God was personally involved in everything. Can we recognize God's involved in everything? I think when we talk about our will and making good choices, do we realize God's personally involved in everything? Everything we do. I know that's kind of hard to have that, keep that mainframe going. Whether it's unpleasant, sinful, unjust, God is involved. Look at this. Look at Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, uh, bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had taken him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph. And you know what the key to Joseph's life is that we know, and he sh- and we should know about ourselves, is the Lord is with us. The Lord was with him. Now, I would say that would be great if that was said once. But I want you to know that this statement is repeated and repeated and repeated. For whose benefit? Well, I think this is Joseph's mindset. And he had to say, God's with me. God's with- I know this is crazy, but God is with me. Yeah, the food here in prison is horrible. God's with me. I'm being put, I'm put in prison for no reason. God is with me. And can he maintain that thought pattern for his entire life? Can someone do that? And you say, well, that's impossible. No, it's not. Verse 3 says this. Now his master saw, his master saw, Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. Now here's Joseph. God is so much with him, everything he's touching for Potiphar as his, basically his house uh, attendant is prospering. And who does he accredit to? This man of many uh, gods, this polytheistic guy says, wow, Joseph's different. God's with him. In the midst of all these crazy circumstances. And re- remember, at the same time, Joseph's got to, lo- no, lo- uh, got to learn new customs new language, new, new everything. Uh, and he's been abandoned from his family. And it started when he was 17. Take a 17-year-old of his, out of his environment and throw him in something so different. What happens? Will he maintain his integrity? Will he maintain that standard? Look at verse 5. And it came about from that time he made, made, uh, he made him overseer in his house. And, all, and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on the account of Joseph. Thus, the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and on the field. So, by secondary, because Joseph was so blessed by God, Potiphar, who is no, there's no place we could see he ever believed in God, was also blessed. So, the fallout was tremendous. Look at uh, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. So even in his jail, God's reaching out to him and he's, he's being blessed 
and the Lord's with him. Verse 23, the chief jailer, jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made him, made it, uh, made to prosper. So again, what we see is God's constantly involved in Joseph's life because Joseph's not compromising where he stands as far as God's involvement. Now, I'm going to give you a profound statement. I didn't make it up, but I think it's one of the greatest things I've ever heard. See, outside stuff never affected Joseph because he was solid inside. Just think about that. Really think about that profound statement for a minute. Joseph at 17 was so solid inside, nothing outside could, could get to him. Isn't that profound? And where does that begin with? A strong theological understanding of who God is and God's involvement in your life. And I think that will help us as we uh, go through life. Joseph had, before it was written, Joseph had a Romans 8.28 mentality. Before it was ever written, that's how Joseph stood upon understanding what God would do. He'd work all things together. We're going to spend some time in a... Maybe the, in the next few minutes, just going through Romans 8.28, I want to show you some things. But I want to go over to chapter 45 for a second. Genesis 45. Now, this is much later in Joseph's life. He's now uh, been upscaled a little bit. And this is tough. Can you overlook life's circumstances to the bigger picture? That's my question for this morning as we look at Joseph's life. Can you overlook horrible mistreatment, crazy circumstances, stuff that happens in life and see the big picture? And you say, well, look at Joseph. God used him. God will never use me like that, so there's no big picture. Oh, yes, there is a big picture. There's a big picture for all of us. And basically it comes down to this. Can you overlook secondary issues for the primary thing in life? What's the, what's the secondary issue? Stuff. Stuff. And I think the best way to do this is look through it. So let's begin in verse 3. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Now, I don't know how you all would have reacted on both sides of this. Joseph kept his mouth shut until the proper time to at least let his brothers know. You know, and this is kind of weird because there probably was some similarity of at least one of the brothers, and they would have said, you know, you look kind of familiar. But again, the Egyptian way and culture of dressing and, and look, Joseph probably, and years had gone by, he changed a little bit. His brothers became older, and who knows how their memory was. But the, but the important part was, Joseph says, I, I am your bro- I'm your brother, but his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. I think there's more to that. Because what's the initial thought of any of these guys should have been what? Joseph is second in power of the Egyptian empire. We're just little what? Dots on the map kind of thing. He probably has a ton of vengeance build up and we're, we're dead. We're as good as cooked. Okay? Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer. Which is like, okay, now you're in a sword's length instead of, you know, escape length kind of thing. I am your brother Joseph who you sold in this Egypt. In other words, he didn't let him get away with anything. He told him exactly what had happened. And, and they have to now be what? They made choices. And choices say you have to be what? Personally responsible. Brothers had a responsibility to their uh, actions. Is Joseph waiting for the responsibility of their actions to kick in, or is he still going to react properly to the situation? So all these things are going on right now. So in verse 5, he says, Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, which is interesting, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. So what did Joseph know and understand? The big picture, not the stuff. The stuff is not relevant. And if anybody was a hard luck, hard knock kid, it was Joseph. You know, he had he had no family, nothing going on. And as we look in verse uh, verse seven, he says, "And God sent me before you to preserve 
for you, a remnant on earth. Joseph knew the big picture. Big picture was the nation of Israel has to survive through these 12 tribes, these 12 brothers. And in order for them to survive, God sent me ahead. Isn't that crazy? How much of the Bible did Joseph have? Come on. You're all good students. Moses isn't here yet. So how much of the Bible did Joseph have? Nothing. And yet he was fully what? Cognizant of the God of all creation, the sovereignty of God. He had a relationship with that God. And you're going to, somebody will inevitably walk up. But his relationship was different. God was doing things and speaking to him. and doing. No, no. To whom much is given, much is required. You are much more responsible. Because you have much more information. Than jo- we got the story of Joseph. How did Joseph react? So we're, we're, we've got uh, a better situation. Verse 8 says, Now therefore it was not you who sent me here, but God. Wait a minute. We took you from our father. We were going to kill you. We threw you in a pit. We sold you off into slavery. No, but that was all God's hand. God was just using you guys as an instrument. I don't know if you get that, but it's, it's fascinating to see that because Joseph saw the hand of God on everything that was happening. God, Joseph didn't have a brother complex. He had a God attitude. It was all about God. It wasn't about his brothers. Uh, did Joseph have the correct reaction? We've got to look at what was Joseph's reactions to this whole thing, and we can say, yes, he did. Then we've got to say, why does he have that? Because he understood, listen, this is so applicable to us, because he understood that God's personal involvement in his life. He understood God's personal involvement in his life. That's all you have to understand, is God's personally, as a believer, God's personally involved in your life, and, we, and, we, and that would help us grow to maturity. You with me? Recognize reactions against us. Recognize things that happen. Recognize circumstances we're going through. Recognize things that we might go through. Recognize losses we may have or, or harm that may come upon us. And then choose the godly thing. Choose truth over anything else and understand God is sovereign. Now, here's the problem. Somebody, some people overplay the sovereignty of God and take no responsibility. I think they work very much in balance. And I think we could see that in Joseph's life. We want to spend a good time, uh, spend more time, excuse me, spend more time in Joseph's life and you'll understand the balance there. God never says, uh, Joseph, you don't have to do anything. I'll take care of it. No, that doesn't happen. Joseph's still got to interact with different people. At the same time, Joseph never thinks God's not on the scene. Joseph understands God's always there and always, always part of what's going on. Uh, and that God can put all things together for his good. And, and as we look at this, uh, we have to have a, a better understanding, a, a great understanding of what happens in these circumstances and how God controls that. So let's, let's take a few seconds, step back. I want to just kind of review some ideas. And while I'm doing that, everybody can turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to spend a few minutes in Romans chapter 8. So, so now we're still under the caption, a, a, a big caption, I guess is the best way to put it, that sometimes, or, or maybe a lot of times, or maybe multiple times, uh, that you may find yourself, or forced, you're, or you're, you are forced into situations, or find yourself in situations that's contrary to your wishes or your desires. Uh, yet you are fully responsible for your reactions uh, to make under those circumstances. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 8 and get. Uh, a New Testament look at Joseph's life, I best best way to look at it. Verse 18 says this, 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us. That's a Joseph attitude, right? Joseph understood the primary issue in light of the secondary things that were going on. So we could, in this caption, there's suffering. Uh, sin in life makes suffering, and suffering makes life miserable. I don't know if you know that. You know, and everybody uh, looks around and say, "Why am I? Why is this happening to me? Why me? Why me?" And the question is, "Why not you?" We're all we're all humans in a sinful world, and what is God trying to teach us? And I think most of the times we're trying. He wants us to 
uh, exercise our, under, our, our grasp of what God is doing in your life. And look at what he says. What's, what's Paul's reach here? Paul's reach here is compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, life is temporary. We have something better to look forward to. I was I read some some flyer that came in the mail the other day from I think it's Christ for Humanity pretty interesting, but they had a little article about keeping your fork when you're eating dinner at somebody's house. And I thought it was kind of cool because you keep your fork. What are you waiting for? Dessert. They were told to keep the fork for dessert because the best is yet to come. And I think sometimes we got to understand in life this is if this is the best that no we're we're we're, we're missing it. The best is yet to come and. Paul goes into that, explaining that. So there's suffering, and notice what he says that kind of puts the time frame on this. Suffering of this present time. Of this present time. That means there's not suffering in another time. So at the time to come, there'll be glory. Glory says there's no suffering. We know from biblical account there's no tears, no pain, no sorrow. Right? You good with that? So if you don't have pain, sorrow, and all those other things, suffering, you're basically uh, out of life circumstances of throwing you too many curveballs when you can't hit it kind of thing. So we got this going on. Look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will. What did creation do to decide to, to be the way it is today? Because when the fall occurred, you know it affected everything. Right? Um, I got two palm trees there in the foyer, and it, I'm being cursed with those palm trees. I've done everything to keep them alive. And and I'm just saying sin got to them. So if you want to see what sin's like, go look at the palm trees when you leave. Because uh, I can't do I water. I've, I've done everything other than, you know, resuscitate manually or something. I don't know what has to be done. And uh, where I grew up, palms were just like candy. <laughs> it was easy. <laughs> Here, here it's taking, taking its toll. But he, listen to this. When we talk about creation, it's, part, it's, it's in bondage to sin. Creation's in this bondage to sin. Uh, and verse 21 goes on that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That one, one day, cre- creation's going to be set free. Basically, it's going to have its proper place that God created everything for you know, think of the beauty of Eden over the entire earth kind of idea. Uh, and verse 22 says, For we know that the creation groans. Now, I don't, I don't want to be one of those, I don't know, tree hugger kind of people. But if you listen and look out at creation, you can see there's a groan. You know how I see it? Well, right now, most of the grass is brown. That's a groan. Most of the trees don't have leaves. And you say, well, that's seasonal. That'll happen. Yeah, but God didn't create this. He created it all to be lush and beautiful all the time in perfect environment like San Diego. But try and live there. It's expensive. Now, I didn't say San Diego is heaven, so don't, don't go out of here and say, hey, pastor thinks if you move to San Diego, you're in heaven. No, it's expensive. Uh, and they have, never mind. So why the ground? What's going on? What's going on is, is creation is under horrible, horrible circumstances. Do you know that? It's over. It's, it's, the dominion of sin is over it. And, and I'm going to say something. I don't want you going out here depressed today. But we are drowning in a cesspool of sin and consequences. So when we look around, we should be able to have a godly look at things. And sin has caused consequences. And it's a cesspool out there of sin. I think I said... I don't know which class it was. The, the biggest epidemic we have is sin. It kills people by the millions every day. Okay, because why? Death was never part of God's original plan. He didn't say, Adam and Eve, you can live in the garden, you can multiply, you just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge. But guess what? In about eight years or 80 years or 800 years, you just may die. He never said that. Because there was another tree in the garden. Do you know what the name of the other tree was called? The tree of life. They chose which tree first to eat from that we know of. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They'd rather know about good and evil than to live. So the, shows you the choices man makes. So when we look at Joseph in uh, his life, he was hated and mistreated and sold into slavery, falsely accused. Uh, I don't know about you all, but I would have a big groan going in my life, like, ugh, really? 
Um, I think there's an old ad. I don't know who came up with it that, that bad things happen in threes, right? Like sneezes. And, and Joseph's way past three. Okay? But most of you will say, like, oh, this thing happened and this thing happened. Okay, what's the third bad thing? Because the, the number will be up and we'll be okay. Uh, but it's interesting because Joseph's scenario, I guess is the best way to put it, happened in a scenario that creation's already groaning. Now Joseph's groaning within that situation. And yet, since we're in a groan-filled world, we're still responsible for our reactions. Because we could have a thousand excuses. I mean, we just could for everything that happened. And God doesn't want excuses. He wants us to understand Romans 8.28. So let's go to Romans 8.28. And, 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 and we're going to just touch on it a little bit and kind of go into it next week a little bit more. But I want you to understand this. Romans 8.28 is within the context of this environment we live in. Kind of get what I'm saying? Yet Romans 8.28, within the environment which we live in, gives us a, gr- a wonderful basis on how to react. It's not a dumping place to put things in to say, okay, I got what's going on. I'm just going to claim Romans 8.28. No, it's a theological understanding for you to live by, to build that solid core, right? When things happen, you have this solidity inside, even though the outwardly chaos is happening. Now, let me kind of give you just a taste. I know most of you don't want to hear baseball stories, but I'll give you one anyway, okay? Because I want you to understand, you have to have a mentality sometimes in life that correlates with other things. So, baseball is a game of failure. I know I've all t- told you guys this often. It, you don't get paid a lot of money to, to have a, like a thousand batting average. You have a very low batting average. You can get 14 million today a year for batting horribly. Failing more times than you succeed. You with me so far? You know, you get up to bat, you get a hit, that's good. You strike out, it's not so good uh, kind of idea, okay? So in life, so so when you look at baseball, you at least you get another time up to bat. So you will succeed at some point, hopefully, and your success ratio is dependent on how good you are. Obviously, better batters, but the best of batters are lucky if they hit 300, okay? You with me so far? See, some of you understand some idea. But the failure is there. Now, I, I think the same thing comes with the child that's learning to walk. They, they don't fall once in a rump and never walk again. They say, well, I failed. I'm not doing that again. Baseball player says, okay, I struck out. I'm never doing that again. They'll say something like, I saw that ball. I should have hit it, and I'm going to look for it next time and be more on guard. They, they change things to get better each time. In life, God never promised anybody a rose garden. He promised you thorns. Because we're growing, we're we're living in a place that's sin-ridden. Do you understand that? And no matter who you interact with, even if you marry the love of your life, the soulmate of all soulmates, and you know God threw her or him in your lap, and it's a perfect relationship. There's a morning you're gonna wake up and say, "Keep your eyes open." Do you understand what I'm saying? Because why? People are sinners and do sinful things. And it's not an excuse, but there's no excuse for your reaction inappropriately. Reaction should be godly. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? So let's go to Romans 28 under that lecture kind of idea. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now here's here's the interesting thing. It begins with the word and. Okay, I want you to always see words that we need to connect to certain things. So what it's saying is, this is within the context of everything that's happening in Romans chapter 8. Well, here's the first thing in Romans chapter 8. Go back to verse 1. So you know what's going on. How's this for a believer's mentality? There is, there is therefore now, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are under no condemnation. We have nothing to look forward to but the glory to come. That's what Paul has said a couple of times in this chapter. So back at Romans 8.28, we know all this is connected together. He's talking to a believer and what God does in a believer's life and God's intimately involved in a believer's life. He's not saying who's a believer. Now sometimes people will say, well, it's only those that God loves. God doesn't love every believer. I'm going to put that up there with one of the stupidest comments I've ever heard on this verse. 
God loves what? For God so loved the world. So God's involved intimately with everyone. It's not a special kind of love. He wants, he wants, Paul wants you to recognize a theological uh, understanding that God loves you. And usually you say, well, he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't care about what's going on in my life. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. The word that begins this, this we know, and I'm going to just deal with this word and then we're going to go for a break between classes, but I want you to see this. I think it's fascinating. Paul loves this word. He uses this phrase, this, this word, no, 30 times. 30 times. And it's to introduce common knowledge taught among believers. So I would say here this morning, we should know this. This should be common knowledge amongst all of us as believers. These are basic foundational stones. So say, you believe in Jesus, you have that foundation laid because Jesus is what? The chief cornerstone? Now you're putting blocks on that foundation. And one of the blocks should say written on it, Romans 8.28. You kind of get what I'm saying? Because we know this. But how often we simply forget this in the midst of a crisis. But we know this. Uh, This is going to be uh, and should be a concept that is known or should be known. And Paul's also reminding believers that don't know, we should know this. Kind of get what I'm saying? So know this. Write it down if you have to. Know this. Uh, It fascinates me how many people are acquaintedly, uh, as believers, are acquainted with Romans 8.28, but how many properly apply it? They just want to quote it. But then life is all chaotic to them, but they'll quote, well, I know God loves me and he's working all things out together. But they don't understand what's, what the verse says. And this word for know is oida in Greek, O-I-D-A. There's different words for know. This basically is not, not uh, knowledge that by experience. I didn't learn this in life, okay? But it's based on fact. For instance, I don't think anybody in this room would argue with the idea of one plus one equals two. If you want to, afterwards we'll discuss that. But that's just common knowledge, right? Right? I'm everybody on the same math page. <laughs> what is he talking about? It's so complex. Um, do you know there's certain things in life you cannot not know? And if you ever find somebody that doesn't know the things that are those that you cannot not know, there's always going to be an issue with you and talking to them, going, "Well, what is this person? Do? That's common knowledge. That's com- you ever seen common knowledge?" So, so basically what Paul is saying is we know these certain common knowledge facts. We should know this as a fact. This should be in our mainframe as a common fact. Not only that, it's placed first in the Greek sentence, this word know. So he's emphatically saying this. So he's emphatically saying we emphatically know this certain fact without a shadow of a doubt that it's based on fact and we know this. Uh, and... I think we need to understand, as we look at this, we not only need to know it, we need to grasp it, we need to keep repeating it, make it part of what we know as our knowledge base, because this is the building block that helps stabilize life. So we're going to kind of pick up next week with how all things do work together. So kind of chew on that next week. Um, If you have a King James Version, how many of you use King James Version? Um, Do me a favor this week, if that's your basic Bible you use, Find a way to look at different versions of it. It's kind of interesting how the King James uh, translates it and how other versions, especially the New American Standard. And we'll deal with that next week, but I just want you to do that because I am basing my understanding on the New American Standard. So if anybody's watching out there and says, oh, he's corrupt, he doesn't do King James, that's all right. I'm going to dismiss you to go get coffee because I need some. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you again looking into this understanding of Esau and his framework with making his choices was immoral and ungodly. And then we went to Joseph, and Joseph was always a, a, a man, even as a young man, that understood the primary thing, his relationship with God and all everything else was secondary. And he knew that God was in his midst and involved in his life personally. Father, help us to be Joseph-like people. In Jesus' name, amen.